Hello. Hyperandrogenism is a topic that has been controversial throughout the 20th century, or indeed as long as women have been entitled to compete in professional sport. In the 1950s, Prince Franz of Liechtenstein, who was then a member of the International Olympic Committee, said that he wanted to be spared the unesthetic spectacle of women trying to look and act like men. And in the 1960s, the IOC and the IAAF introduced a gender verification system, which initially began as a rather crude method of simply checking people's bits before they competed, and then later became a scientific or became the purportedly more scientific method of checking people's chromosomes, although that divided opinion in the scientific community. An opinion in the sporting community remains divided on hyperandrogenism itself. Hyperandrogenism, as the name suggests, is a condition in which females have high levels of naturally occurring androgens, and the most well-known androgen is testosterone. It's important to underline, I think, that this is not about doping. It's not a doping issue. We're not talking about people taking testosterone or androgen supplements. For those with an interest in sport law, it's particularly topical at the moment because the Court of Arbitration for Sport are considering at the moment how athletes with hyperandrogenism should be treated in sports which are, quote, gender-affected. I'm happy to say that I'm joined by my colleague Lydia Banerjee. Um, Lydia, you gave a recent talk about this and you focused on the famous um, Chand decision. Would you mind just starting off by explaining to us what happened in that case? Well, uh, Chand is quite a difficult case to summarise because of the length of the decision which has been given by CAS on the interim basis. But effectively, the IAAF regulations were under scrutiny. The regulations prevent female athletes with more than 10 nanomoles per litre of testosterone from competing in the female competition until they can demonstrate either that their body is resistant to the effects of naturally occurring testosterone or they have undergone hormone-based treatment to reduce their levels of testosterone to below the prescribed limit. Now, Chan's level of testosterone exceeded the limit set in the regulations, so she was barred from competing. And she argued that the regulations are discriminatory, as they impose a restriction on female athletes which is not applied to male athletes. Now, the IAAF accepts that they are a discriminatory measure, but they argue that they are justifiable as a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. The legitimate aim being fairness in sport, something which those acting on behalf of Chand accept is a legitimate aim. So the only question for Cass was whether or not the measures were a proportionate means. Effectively, at this stage, Cass have decided that the IAAF have not demonstrated that they are a proportionate means, and that they should have a period in which to gather evidence to seek to support the regulations. In the interim, the regulations have been suspended, meaning Chand and other competitors in her position were cleared to compete, including at the Rio Olympics. But as I understand it, it's coming back before the cast this year? That's right. Okay. Uh, well, before we get into the ethical debate about this, could you talk us through um, the legal framework for gender-based sport in domestic law? Well, the Equality Act prevents people being treated differently on the basis of a protected characteristic, and for our purposes today, that's gender. There are certain specific exceptions, and in the field of sport, that includes the fact that men and women can be treated differently in what's known as a gender-affected sport. What we mean by that is a sport in which the average man would have an advantage over the average woman, 
unrelated to their training or experience, but based purely on the fact that they're male. And in these circumstances, we are allowed to have male and female competitions separate but equal. As soon as we have the idea of male or female categories, we then need to classify people into one or the other. And the law is based on the idea that inherent in being male is an advantage in some sports which should justify the separation of athletes. The problem is, how do we identify what it is about being male that provides that advantage? Okay, and I can see already how this is a very difficult scientific debate, but also ethical debate. Uh, and if we're talking about if we're talking about having an even playing field, I suppose the starting point to the debate has to be whether or not, or to what extent, testosterone or some other androgen hormone um, affords you some kind of unfair advantage in sport. Now, is that necessarily the case? Well, this is a difficult one. I mean, the simple answer is that testosterone on its own doesn't. Uh, and we can see that because there are athletes who have lowered levels of testosterone who experience no disadvantage in competition. Uh, likewise, there are female athletes whose bodies suppress the impact of testosterone. And again, they're competing at the elite level. So if testosterone was a definitive characteristic, then, then those situations wouldn't arise. And also, of course, if testosterone was the measure of success, then Duty Chand, rather than um, not making it out of the first heats at the Olympics, would have won the event. Mm. And she didn't. Um, in fact, one report before CAS suggested there are around 200 and between 200 and 300 genes affecting sports performance, which makes it impossible to identify a definitive line at which a certain sex-typical characteristic confers an advantage. Uh, but I think the other thing here is that there's a whole host of naturally occurring conditions which provide a competitive advantage, which we don't try to regulate. Mm. Uh, and there's, you know, very famous examples um, in some of the elite athletes of our day, um, one of which would be Michael Phelps, who has um, a much wider wingspan than most people. He has uh, a body shape which is perfectly conditioned for swimming. His hands and feet are larger than most. His joints are um, extra supple, so he can actually get more flick and kick than most can um, in his technique. He also has extra aerobic capacity. And those sorts of things are not regulated in any way, even though they confer an obvious and significant competitive advantage. And some other examples that we find in other sports, I mean, height is a genetic quality, it's an advantage for basketball and rowing, it's a disadvantage for powerlifting. Um, high lung capacity, advantage in swimming. There's actually a mitochondrial condition which many athletes in endurance events have, which gives them extra aerobic capacity and resistance to fatigue. And the list goes on. And the point is, and that doesn't even take into account things like funding and where you're born, mm. which actually is probably the single greatest determinant of success at the moment mm. in today's world. Or how naturally lazy you are. Or how naturally lazy you are. <laughs> so levels of testosterone may be one factor, but when we look at it in the context of all of these other factors, it's certainly not determinative. And to my mind, the idea of creating a level playing field is, is flawed, because as soon as we start saying a level playing field, we've got to start regulating some of these other areas where there is a naturally occurring and significant competitive advantage. Mm. But the other thing, which I think is the greatest argument against testosterone being determinative, is that there is no evidence of correlation between naturally occurring levels of testosterone in men and sporting success. If testosterone doesn't make the difference between men, 
then why should it be treated as the reason for the difference between men and women? Now, as you say, there, there are a million and one biological differences between each of us. Um, but the one we seem to focus on all the time, and especially in sport, is biological gender. Is there an argument, and I think lots of people say there is, that a lot of this debate is about a social construct of gender, not really about this question of creating a fair or a level playing field? Well, I think that's an, an interesting question, and particularly when we look at how the IWF regulations work, because it's a model which is based on suspicion. So if there is a suspicion that a female athlete has high levels of endogenous testosterone, then they may be required to be tested and to go through the process. But what's our suspicion based on? You know, our levels of testosterone are not indicated um, in any straightforward manner. What we're looking at is outward signs of maleness. Mm. So, for example, uh, if somebody is hairier or not as hairy, that's a quality which is linked to testosterone, but it's also linked to race. Now, if somebody sees somebody and thinks, hang on a minute, that's uh, taking them outside what I'd expect as a female athlete. I'm a bit suspicious about this. And they're then reported. That's something which is a really dangerous game because we're really basing it on prejudice, uh, discrimination, and regionally based concepts of female. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we, we've touched on these areas. Um, I think it's right to say that the IWS rules are used as a model for other sporting associations. So the decision that CAS is going to come to um, in the challenge that's coming up this year is going to be very important across the world of sport. Is it your view that those rules stand up to scrutiny? Well, I think the difficulty is that they're starting from an assumption which we can't prove and establish. Um, the more that I have looked at this, uh, when I delivered the talk recently, I spoke alongside a scientist and he was very firmly of the view that testosterone could not be used as an individual marker. Mm. Um, I think the difficulty is that it's, it's a very attractively simple argument to say we know men are stronger and faster than women. We know that difference emerges during puberty. We know that the biggest difference at that stage is a surge in testosterone levels. Testosterone is directly linked to muscle growth. And most men have significantly higher levels of testosterone than most women. So there's a reasonable assumption that some of the competitive advantage experienced by men arises from their level of testosterone. There's then an assumption made that women with higher levels of testosterone will also experience competitive advantage, akin to that enjoyed by men over women. But I think, therefore, we say, in order to remove that advantage, we need to regulate the level of testosterone which they have. The difficulty is that we don't actually know how women use the naturally occurring testosterone, what impact it has on their body, whether it operates in the same way as it does in men. And as I said earlier, we don't even know what impact it has on men's competitiveness. So there's a whole host of research which hasn't been done and hasn't been looked at. And whether the IAAF will have been able to look at that in sufficient detail in the two years that they've had to gather the evidence uh, remains to be seen. Mm. And of course, um, as we explored earlier, it also ignores a whole host of areas where competitive advantages arise without comment or censure. And I think the problem is that what they're trying to achieve in the regulations is separation of male and female. And uh, that's not the same as saying a level playing field. So it's quite a difficult issue. OK, so let's, let's tie the strands together then. Where do you think this debate is going? Well, first of all, we'll need to see what evidence comes up 
in relation to the, the challenge in the forecast. And they, they have until 2017, so that's this year, in which to produce the evidence. It's going to be very interesting to see what is what comes out of that. But there are some other questions for us as well that I think arise from this debate being thrown into the spotlight. First of all, what do we mean by gender-affected sport? Um, and should we rethink how we define such sports? Because they are defined by an average person, and professional athletes are anything but average. Mm. So are we actually looking at those, those, that definition in the first place in the wrong way? And of course, if a sport is not a gender-affected sport, we don't need to separate men and women, and this issue, do, men and women, do, this issue just doesn't arise. Um, obviously, anything that comes out of the IAAF, as you said, the regulations are re replicated across many sports, and so there's an awful lot of sports we're going to have to rethink. And they will have to work out who is eligible to compete in the female competition. And that's relevant particularly because we have to remember that in some countries, your gender is how you define yourself. In this country, your gender is what's given to you on your birth certificate at birth, and that's based on a pretty crude visual assessment of genitalia. But actually, in many countries, how you self-define determines your gender. So if you self-define as female, can you compete in a female competition, even if you are biologically 100% male? I think the other thing that we need to think about is, does the basis for gender-affected sport apply for team sports in the same way that it might for an individual sport? Um, whilst we might be able to recognise there are differences between men and women in, say, sprinting, um, does that difference apply when we then look at a team sport such as football, where actually the differences between genders may confer an advantage when you put a mixed team on the field? Mm. At the moment, I don't think, particularly in team sports, that question's been grappled with at all. And in many sports, there is just an assumption that we are a gender-affected sport. Uh, play pigeon shooting is apparently a gender-affected sport. Oh, wow, okay. And so you can see that this assumption has just been made without really thinking why, what's the advantage, uh, and should it apply? So I think there's lots of issues that will come up and will be thrown into the spotlight as a result of this challenge in CAS. Yes, all interesting questions, um, which we'll have to keep an eye on. I don't think we're in a position to solve them in the context of a 15-minute Littleton Chambers Sports Law podcast. But Lydia Banerjee, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.